Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day, and we pray that as we study your word again, that you would bless us and help us to have a deeper understanding of the things of God. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last class period, which was two weeks ago, we went through Hebrews chapter 7, which described the Melchizedek priesthood. And it showed that Jesus comes from the Melchizedek order rather than the Levitical priesthood. And one of the things about Melchizedek is that there is no record of the beginning of his life or the end of his life. That doesn't mean that he wasn't a real human being who was born and who died. It's just that there's no biblical record of that account. And it fits the illustration of Jesus, who is without beginning. So he's not a created being, um, just as a point of order. Some of our early Adventist pioneers didn't understand that properly. And he's without ending. And we see towards the end of chapter 7 that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And I, I when we got to verse 26, I made a comment, and I want to back that up today. But verse 26 says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now, humanly speaking, we read that verse, and we're like, well, that's Jesus. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And I'll never be like that. But it's interesting, Ellen White has a comment about this verse. It's in Heavenly Places, page 160. And she says, Every soul that gains eternal life must be like Christ, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So that's in Heavenly Places, page 160. So the book of Hebrews is showing us this is who Jesus is. This is what he was, but he was like this so that he can help us to be like that as well. And so that kind of wraps up Hebrews chapter 7. Then when we get to Hebrews chapter 8, and this is where we're going to pick up today, we're going to make some connections to what we studied in the first seven chapters. So I'd like a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. Is there a volunteer? Right there. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Okay, thank you. So what's Paul saying here? Hebrews chapter 8 starting in verse 1. What he's saying is this. The very first sentence, he says, the things of which we have spoken, this is the sum or the summary. First seven chapters proves that Jesus is a high priest set on the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the true sanctuary or of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So first seven chapters prove that Jesus is our high priest. And that's that he is in heaven, set on the right hand of the throne of God. So 
what about the first seven chapters again? Prove, or how did Paul use the first seven chapters to prove that Jesus is high priest set on the right hand of the throne of God? Chapter one, Jesus is God. Chapter two, Jesus is fully man. Because he was made in all things like his brethren, he can help us who are tempted. Um, chapter 3, he's better than Moses. Chapter 4, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to get help from him to enter into his rest. Chapter 5, we see that there's high priests on earth and just as they should be merciful to people here on earth, so is Christ. Chapter 6, we see that Jesus is the forerunner entered into the veil. So if he's the forerunner, we should follow him. Chapter 7, we see he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is an unchangeable, everlasting priesthood. Then when we get to chapter 8, verse 1, this is the sum. Because of all those things, we have a high priest in heaven who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, is there another place in the book of Hebrews that describes Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. What's that? Chapter 1. Okay. Anywhere else? <clears throat> How about chapter 12? I know we haven't gotten there. <clears throat> but in chapter 12, <clears throat> famous passage, verses 1 and 2. Could I have a volunteer read Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2? Right down here. Wait for the microphone, please. Right there. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay. Now, we know this passage, but let's think about it in context of Hebrews 8, verse 1. In Hebrews 8, verse 1, we have a high priest set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Who do we have in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2? How is Jesus described? He's described as the author and the finisher of our faith. So chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, he's our high priest set at the right hand of the throne of God. Chapter 12, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, we've talked about Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith earlier in our studies. We've seen that he's the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him in Hebrews chapter 5. We see he's the captain of our eternal salvation in Hebrews chapter 2. And all of those things are things that Paul is saying about Christ to prove that he's our high priest. So he's the captain of our salvation to all those who obey him in chapter 2. And by the way, he was made in all things like his brethren so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest because he knows that we will be tempted just as he was tempted and he can help us. And in chapter 5, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered And therefore, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. So you see all those things earlier in Hebrews. Then you get to chapter 8. Because of all those things, he's qualified to be our high priest, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. But then he's also described as the author and the finisher of our faith. So how do we connect the concept 
of Jesus as our high priest and as the author and the finisher of our faith. So, what is the purpose of Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith? You could also say that it's his role. The role of Jesus as our high priest is to be the author and finisher of our faith. That's what he is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. So, as he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God as high priest... His function, therefore, is to be the author and the finisher of our faith. So how does that happen? What is he trying to do for us as high priest and author and finisher of our faith? Well, if you look at Hebrews 12, it says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, <clears throat> we're being called to lay aside every way and the sin, which doth so easily beset us. We're being called to run this race with patience. Now, have we seen anywhere, and I've already mentioned it this morning, have we seen anywhere else in the book of Hebrews about running after someone? Hebrews 6, Jesus is the forerunner entered into the veil as our high priest. So that means Jesus ran this race ahead of us. So he ran a race where he laid aside every weight. He obviously didn't sin. He ran with patience. And it says he learned obedience through the things which he suffered in Hebrews chapter 5 and so forth. So, Jesus as our high priest in heaven, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, is, his function is to be our high priest and to be the author and finisher of our faith. And as the author and the finisher of our faith, his goal is to get us to run the race that he ran. And Hebrews 6 tells us that he was the forerunner. And how did he run this race? And we'll get to chapter 12 again, but this is important. So he endured the cross. And the word for endured here is the same as patience. So it starts at the cross. And then it says he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So how do we run this race? Well, first of all, when you have a race, there's a beginning point and an ending point. What's the beginning point? According to Hebrews 12, it's the cross. Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. What's the finish line? The right hand of the throne of God. And that's where Jesus is as our great high priest. So then let's connect this to author and finisher of our faith. When Jesus is the author of our faith, that means it's a beginning point of our faith. Where does the beginning point of our faith begin? begins at the cross. And he's, so he's the author of our faith. That begins at the cross. That's where the race begins. He's the author of our faith. He's also the finisher of our faith. And where does the race end? It ends in the sanctuary in heaven. And of course, as good Seventh-day Adventists, we know that that's in the most holy place 
of the heavenly sanctuary. He's the finisher of our faith. So Jesus is our high priest, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as our high priest, he also functions as the author and finisher of our faith. And his goal as our high priest and the author and finisher of our faith, is to have us run the same race that he ran. He's the forerunner. What's that race? The race where we lay aside every way and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And we run with patience the race that is set before us and we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So here's what we have here. We have a race with patience. So we have the word patience and we have looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When our faith is finished by Jesus, again, the finishing point for that experience takes place in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what kind of faith will God's people have if they finish the same race that Jesus finished? And they get to the same finishing point that Jesus got to. They have the faith of Jesus. So, Jesus as our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's also functioning as our high priest as the author and the finisher of our faith. And his goal is to have a group of people who have patience and the faith of Jesus. And is there any other place in the Bible that describes a group of people like that? Obviously, Revelation 14, 12. Who are the group of people in Revelation 14, 12? That's the 144,000. That's the group of people who ran with patience the race that was set before them. They laid aside every weight and the sin which so easily beset them. They looked at Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. They started at the cross, just as Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him take, him up, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And they keep following Jesus all the way to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And when they get there, they have the faith of Jesus. So here's a group of people who learn how to look unto Jesus every day. They follow him all the way through this life. And so then when you get to heaven, it says the 144,000 follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. And that's because they learned how to do that here on this earth. And so let's just summarize what we're saying then. Jesus as high priest... His function, while he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, is as our high priest, and it's also as the author and finisher of our faith, and he is ministering on behalf of us, his people, so that he will have a group of people who experience the end of the race the way that he did, so that he can have a group of people with patience, who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And so, in a nutshell... Hebrews 8, 1, and 2 is the Seventh-day Adventist message. The first seven chapters prove that Jesus is our great high priest seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So what's Jesus doing as our high priest? He's also the author and the finisher of our faith, preparing a group of people who will come boldly to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And he can offer that mercy, grace, and help because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So that's a powerful message about Jesus. 
I like that. <clears throat> so, Jesus is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So clearly this is God's sanctuary, which he pitched. It was, this is not a man-made sanctuary we're talking about here. This is the sanctuary in heaven. Now, let's continue here. Let's read verses 3 through 5. If I could have a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Right down here. <clears throat> For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Okay. Verses 3 through 5 are pretty simple. We're not going to spend an hour on a basic concept here. Look. In the earthly system, every high priest was ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. And since Jesus is high priest, he needs to offer a sacrifice. And it's pretty clear the sacrifice that he offered. He offered himself. Now, there's no high priest, according to the Levitical system, that ever offered themselves like that. So that makes Jesus better than any high priest that was ever in the Levitical system, right off the top. So if you're you know, we just talked about Hebrews 12 and laying aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. It's like, hey, look to Jesus. He offered himself. Are you willing to give yourself to God? Look what Jesus did for us. So he had someone also to offer. That's himself. And in verse 4, it's clear. If he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Why? Because he was not from the Levitical line. But Paul's already answered that issue in chapter 7 by saying he came from the tribe of Judah and God sworn will not repent. He's from the line of Melchizedek and not from the Levites. Now, verse 5 is an important verse. It says, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. So the earthly sanctuary service is an example and a shadow of heavenly things. Now, when you think of a shadow, a shadow is an imperfect representation of the real thing. It can be longer or it can be shorter depending on the angle with respect to the sun. An example is a little bit more concrete. But then when we get to the end of verse 5, it says that the earthly sanctuary was according to the pattern. All things in the earthly sanctuary were made according to the pattern showed to Moses on Mount Sinai. So the pattern, courtyard, holy place, most holy place. Some people in modern scholarship today say, well, Jesus had two phases to his high priestly ministry and yes, the second phase began in 1844, but he was in the same place from the very beginning. <clears throat> two phases, two places. It's not that complicated. We're following the pattern. And Ellen White in early writings, page 54 and 55 says that Jesus went from the holy place to the most holy place on October 22, 1844. So that case is closed in my mind. But even if you don't have Ellen White, you have Hebrews 8.5 saying the earthly sanctuary is a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, so continuing on, those are minor points really. Let's read um, verses 6 through 8. I'd like a volunteer to read verses 6 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 8. 
6 through 8. Yes. But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay. Thank you. So, we're talking about Christ being high priest. And in verse 6, we see that with Christ as our high priest, he's obtained a more excellent ministry. It's better than the earthly sanctuary. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that Christ and his high priestly ministry is always better than the earthly system that was developed. And if his high priestly ministry is better, so also is the covenant that is established upon his better ministry. So you had a covenant based on the earthly sanctuary, and you have a covenant based on Christ's heavenly sanctuary ministry. Which covenant do you think is going to be better? It's pretty clear. It's the covenant in which Christ is personally taking responsibility for based on his high priestly ministry. And we see that the first covenant, if it had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But verse 8, finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So now we have the concept for the first time uh, explicitly stated of the new covenant to God's people. This new covenant is based on Christ's better ministry, his high priestly ministry, that was established upon better promises. And we're going to look at what this covenant is here in verses 9 and 10. So volunteer to read verses 9 and 10. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them out not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. All right. So here we see the concept of the new covenant. The new covenant is God will put his laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. He will be to them a God, and they shall be to him a people. What was wrong with the old covenant? What happened in the old covenant? God wrote his law on tables of stone. He spoke the commandments the, the mountain, Mount Sinai shook. People were afraid they would die. And out of fear, they said to God, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And guess what happened? They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And we see in Hebrews 3 and 4 that they entered not into God's rest. So God says he found fault with them. He regarded them not. And they did not continue in his covenant. 
they tried to keep God's law on their own strength. And so God says, I'm going to do something better this time. Instead of writing it in tables of stone and taking empty promises from human beings who have no power to keep my law, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, the very first thing you see is the mercy and the faithfulness of God. Remember, we see in Hebrews 2 that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Only someone who's merciful could say, hey, you messed up and you couldn't keep the covenant, so I'm going to make a new covenant with you that's better so that you can have my salvation because I want you to be saved. That's God's mercy and faithfulness. And they didn't deserve it. They clearly messed up. But God says, I'm going to do something better for you. I think we have a comment down here. If we could get the microphone. So we see that God is making a new covenant with his people. There's a comment right here. Thank you. Uh, I feel it's a very significant issue when Paul talks in Philippians 2 about that it is um, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Mm -hmm. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Right. And that was, he puts the law in our minds and Mm -hmm. hearts, and he works in us. So the key is we keep close walk, close touch with him so that he can work in us to will and to do to his purpose. Absolutely. So when it is God that works in us to will and do of his good pleasure, that is the new covenant experience. Now let's, yes, uh, another comment back here. I think the connection with the the covenants and the sacrifices or the Mm -hmm. priestly ministries Mm -hmm. is a good, um, helpful illustration because I don't think the problem with the Old Covenant was that it was good, but we messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incomplete. It was insufficient. It was sure. a symbol, really, of what was supposed to be going on, just like the blood of the animals was insufficient. Like you said, no power. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really efficacious. And so um, the New Covenant is the real power behind uh, that, that made the Old Covenant possible. Right. The reality is that God gave the New Covenant before he gave the Old Covenant. Um, and so the power was always there. Um, and the earthly sanctuary system was intended to point people to Christ the sacrifice so that they would have a covenant relationship with him, but it, it didn't work. Um, so let's look at this concept of the New Covenant where... God says, I will put my laws into their mind, will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And actually, the new covenant continues in verse 12, where he says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, when God puts his law into our mind and writes his law into our hearts, how let's, let's just have a biblical definition of of how good God's law is. So if you go to Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, uh, 
we see in verse 12, in Romans 7, verse 12, it says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. And later on, Paul, in the book of Romans, talks about how the law is a law of liberty. So God's law is holy, just, and good. Somehow in today's society, um, people look at the law and, and think of it in a bad way and think that if you try to keep it, that's legalism. And yet what God is saying here is, look, I'm taking matters into my own hands. I have the power, if he will let me, to write my law, which is holy, just, and good, which, by the way, is a transcript of his character because we see in the book of Exodus that the, God's character is that he's holy, just, and good. So the law is holy, just, and good, which is a transcript of God's character, and it's written in our hearts and in our minds. And <clears throat> this new covenant experience that Paul's writing about takes place after the cross. So if people say that the law was nailed to the cross... There's a little bit of a problem here because this law that was apparently nailed to the cross, according to them, God is taking and writing it into the, into the hearts and minds of his people after the cross. So how could something have been nailed to the cross if it's being written in our hearts and minds as a new covenant experience with God? That doesn't make any sense biblically speaking. So now if you believe that the law was nailed to the cross, you've got some serious explaining to do about what the new covenant is. Because God is writing his law, which is holy, just, and good, into the hearts and minds of his people. And as was stated earlier, if his law, which is a transcript of his character, is being written into our hearts and minds, that means that Christ is coming into the hearts and minds of his people. So... This is describing a spiritual, inward, holy experience in which God writes his law into our hearts and minds. Now, does this connect to what we talked about earlier in the chapter, verses, eight, verses 1 and 2? Sure it does. Jesus is the high priest seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a ministry of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. What's he doing as our high priest? He's the author and the finisher of our faith. What does he do as the author and finisher of our faith? He helps us to run the race with patience that's set before us, laying aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. He helps us to look unto him so we can finish the race so that when we get to the end, we have the faith of Jesus. And we see a group of people in Revelation 14 who have the patience of the saints. They have the faith of Jesus. And oh, by the way, they keep the commandments of God, which is the new covenant experience of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. So Jesus is our high priest, who's also the author and finisher of our faith, is empowering a group of people to have patience through the trials of life, to be obedient to his commandments, not through their own strength, but through his power, because he writes his law into our hearts and minds. And if his law is written in our hearts and minds, then obviously we're going to keep his commandments. And if we're keeping his commandments, we are exercising the same faith that Jesus exercised when he was here on this earth. So he can be a merciful and faithful high priest to us because he went through that experience. He took upon himself 
our human nature. And because of that, he gives us the power to run the same race. And then he can put his law into our hearts and minds. So the connections keep getting stronger. They keep getting more powerful. So the new covenant experience is not just, well, God's going to write his law into my heart and mind. How does that happen? Well, we lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Well, how do we do that? We look unto Jesus. What happens when we look unto Jesus? Well, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's set down at the right hand of the throne of God, and he asks us to do the same thing. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. That's in the sanctuary where he's seated. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So the message to Laodicea, a judgment hour people, is overcome as I overcame. And if you do, you'll get to be seated at the throne of God just as I am. And what's Jesus doing at the throne of God? He's our high priest in heaven as the author and finisher of our faith, ministering on our behalf to get a group of people to have the new covenant experience to run the race with patience that's set before us. It's pretty clear. And God raised up the second advent movement so he could have a group of people who have the patience of the saints, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, or in other words, to have the new covenant experience where his law is written into their hearts, into our hearts, and into our minds. And notice verse 11. This is interesting. He says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So what, what's interesting is when the new covenant experience happens, everyone's going to know. So we won't have to start with the basics anymore. And verse 12, we talked about this. He says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more, in that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. <clears throat> now notice what else is part of this new covenant experience. Jesus says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So on a most basic level, what happens in the new covenant experience when Jesus remembers our iniquities no more? He forgives our sins. So we have forgiveness of sins. He's merciful to us. But Jesus says he will remember our sins no more. How is it possible for Jesus to remember our sins no more? I heard Ralph say it. It's the final atonement. So... There is a record of our sins in heaven. If you look at the sanctuary service, it's clear. Let's just look at the old covenant earthly sanctuary system. You would have on a daily basis a a sacrificial offering, and then that blood would go to the holy place. It would be sprinkled on the veil between the holy and the most holy place. That blood would defile the sanctuary. And then on the day of atonement, the sanctuary would need cleansing. And on the day that the sanctuary was cleansed, which was the day of atonement, those sins would be remembered no more when they were blotted out. And Jesus is saying, as high priest in the sanctuary in heaven, when the new covenant experience takes place, one of my roles as high priest will be to blot out the sins of my people so that their sins will be remembered no more. And when that happens, the sanctuary in heaven will be cleansed. We know in, in Adventist theology that that process began in 1844. 
And we also know that this process will be completed when the sins of God's people are blotted out. So the question then is, when will the sins of God's people be blotted out? Well, when God's law is written in their hearts and minds. When will that happen? When a group of people have the new covenant experience by looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, who is also their merciful and faithful high priest, so that they run the race that is set before them, namely to have patience, obedience, and the faith of Jesus. So what is Jesus trying to do in the heavenly sanctuary? He is trying to get a group of people to finish the race so that the sanctuary can be cleansed, so that our sins can be blotted out, so that he can come back. And so instead of being priest, he'll be king, and king of kings and lord of lords. And when he has a group of people like that, he will come back a second time. So in the meantime, he as our merciful and faithful high priest is imploring us as a group of people to look unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, who is also our merciful and faithful high priest, so that he can write his law into our hearts and minds, so that he can blot out our sins at the end of the judgment, and so that there will be a group of people, the 144,000, who have the patience of the saints to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And in Hebrews 12, you know, continuing on after verse 2, we see looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 says, For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And then notice verse 4. It says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So why do we not have the new covenant experience? Why has God's law not been written in our hearts and minds? We're not willing to completely look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to resist sin and the blood striving against sin. We'll look at him sometimes, but then there's a few things that really tick us off, so then we um, let the old man of sin that we've been studying about in our Romans class rise up, and Christ can't write his law into our hearts and minds, and he can't blot out our sins. So what do we do? We consider him. We consider Jesus. That's why Ellen White says, spend a thoughtful hour each day considering the final moments of his life. Look at him in Pilate's court judgment hall. Look at him as he's being spat upon, while he's being mocked, while he's being beaten. He, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed all to him who judges righteously. That's First Peter 2. And Jesus gives us the example. We consider him. That's how we are to live our lives as New Covenant Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists after 1844, and actually all through history, but especially as Seventh-day Adventists living after 1844 in this earth's history. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's also the author and finisher of our faith, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He wants to come into our hearts as the Laodicean people. He wants to put his law into our hearts and minds. And so I pray that we will have that experience of letting Jesus come in, letting him write his law into our hearts and minds, letting him be the author and finisher of our faith so that we can go home with him very soon. So thank you very much. We will study Hebrews 9 next week. That's a very important chapter in the book of Hebrews for understanding the sanctuary message.